So as Amy mentioned at the opening, we are beginning a new adventure this morning with the narrative lectionary. A lectionary, uh, if you don't know what that is, is simply a collection of scripture readings that are assigned to a schedule. And typically we followed the revised common lectionary, which is the most common lectionary followed by most churches. But it has never been the only lectionary, and in recent years, more and more alternative lectionaries have emerged. And so along with Discipleship Council, we're excited to try one that's gained some traction and has ignited our imaginations. The narrative lectionary is a four-year cycle of readings from Scripture, and each gospel gets its own year, unlike in the Revised Common Lectionary, where... Matthew, Mark, and Luke each get their own year, and then John just kind of gets sprinkled in random places. So each gospel will get its own year, and we're going to, with a narrative approach, start each fall in the First Testament, the Old Testament. And then we're going to make our way through some Hebrew Bible stories, through the prophets, and then we'll arrive in our gospel for the year around Christmas time, and then we'll enjoy a leisurely journey with Jesus and the disciples through the gospels, and then we'll come back through to the early church by springtime and wrap up. So it'll follow fall to spring, and you'll get the whole narrative arc of the Bible. So starting at the beginning, kind of making our way through. And then in the next fall, we'll start at the beginning again, but we'll hear different stories that year. Now, this is all a little bit Bible nerdy, uh, so some of you may not care. Uh, I recognize that. And in fact, you may not even really notice, because each Sunday we're still going to read from the Bible, and we're still going to hear a sermon on that Bible. So you may not even notice. But for those of us who are Bible nerdy, it's kind of fun. And even for those of you who aren't, you may, after time, start to notice and kind of feel that rhythm of moving from the start of the Bible, through the prophets, through the gospel, and all the way to the early church. So you might start to feel it. Maybe not, but notice. Be attentive. So if you are a little bit nerdy, I encourage you to look up Narrative Lectionary. Either Amy or I can talk a little bit more about it. Otherwise, with no further ado, here is our scripture reading from the book of Genesis. From Genesis 6. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry to have made humankind on the, on the earth and grieved at heart. So, God said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created. People, together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of Yahweh. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. 
Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. It's width, 50 cubits. And it's height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. Very detailed. And put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten, and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set its foot and returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, and it did not return to him anymore. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the sky, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. (sighs) For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks Thanks be to God. So the first gift of the narrative lectionary is that there's only one text per Sunday. That's the one I get to preach. I don't get to ignore it and preach Jesus instead. (laughs) This is also the second time in a year I've had to preach this flood story. Ah, this story is shocking. 
As Karen Armstrong wrote in her book on Genesis, nothing, starting at the beginning of Genesis, nothing has prepared us for this total and complete act of merciless divine violence. Contrary to popular belief, or at least popular practice, this whole flood and ark story does not seem to me a great nursery decorating theme for a new baby. (laughs) I mean, yeah, pairs of animals are cute. Big boats are nice, I suppose. But we have been too enamored of that image of refuge, forgetting everything that surrounds that big boat. Namely, an entire planet of people and creatures drowning to death. Now, it's hard for me to wrap my mind and heart around Creator God, who within a matter of a few chapters becomes Destroyer God. It helps a bit to know that the Bible is firmly within the genre pattern of several other mythologies of its day. There are several Near Eastern epics, like the well-known epic of Gilgamesh. It's the one that if you've heard of one, you've probably heard of that one. Many of them include a story of a great flood very soon after their own creation stories. A flood that destroys everyone and everything except a divinely favored few. So it helps a bit to know that this is just what happens after creation in the stories of that time. Now, interestingly, in the epic of Gilgamesh, the post-creation flood story, heralds the moment at which the gods and humanity diverge from one another. They part ways. They say, well, it was a nice little run we had. Alternatively, the post-creation Great Flood story in Genesis heralds a moment at which God turns toward humanity and all creation, establishing a covenant or re-establishing a renewed covenant with all of creation and promising never again. Now, I am glad for that turning toward that happens in Genesis. But that still does not make it a cheery decor for an infant's room. Nor does that mean that everything is happily ever after. And even our would-be hero, Noah, who, according to the text, found favor with God, even he is rather less than heroic. He borders on despicable before it's all said and done, or at least traumatized and damaged. Unlike Abraham, who pled on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah when God announced his intent for utter annihilation in Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah, at least according to the story we have, doesn't say a peep on behalf of anyone else. He blithely obeys God's horrific orders and sets about to save his own skin. Unlike the protagonist in the aforementioned epic of Gilgamesh, who after surviving his own great flood emerges from his ark and weeps, hear this heartbreaking passage, and forgive the outdated gender-exclusive language. This is from the epic of Gilgamesh. Stillness had set in, and all of mankind returned to clay. The landscape was as level as a flat roof. 
I opened a hatch, and light fell on my face. Bowing low, I sat and wept, tears running down my face. That's a way to come off an ark. And unlike that weeping survivor of divinely orchestrated utter annihilation, Noah seems to just emerge and carry on. At least we don't have anything in the story that tells us differently. Until, just a few verses later, when he has completely fallen from grace and passed on suffering and trauma to his children and to the generations that will follow. And I don't have time this morning to unpack that whole story as it, uh, as it plays out on the generations, on his children and the generations just after him, but you really only have to read the rest of chapter 9 to get at least the first part of that story. <sighs> so what to do? Well, one of the things that I reflect on in this story of creator God, who seems to have become destroyer God within just a few chapters, is that monotheism, that is, the belief in one God, comes with an inherent problem. And that problem is evil. What do you do with evil? When you've got a whole pantheon of gods, it is very easy to assign good to some of them and then evil to other warring deities. You can just kind of put it out here. But when you've got one God, why is there even evil? And where does it originate? As Karen Armstrong astutely notes, when we contemplate the tragedy of a world convulsed repeatedly by natural catastrophes, which wipe out thousands of innocent people, to say nothing of the atrocities committed by human beings... It is very hard to believe that there is a benevolent deity in charge of the world. Can I get an amen? The authors of Genesis, she writes, do not attempt to deny the theological difficulties inherent in monotheism. We should not construct a theology that is so facile that it enables us to blunt our sense of life's horror and cruelty. Rather, and this is going to be my approach, Rather, we should admit that like Jacob, we have to wrestle painfully in the dark before we can discern the divine in such circumstances. I will not attempt this morning to share with you an entire constructed theology of the whole of who I believe God to be. But in the face of this horrific story, wrestling with its terrifying deity through the night, I wonder what can we claim about God? Is there anything we can claim about God? First, in the flood story, what I see, I see that the struggle between God's justice and God's mercy resides in God. I'm going to come back to that. On a simple level, I can certainly relate to the impulse to throw something out and start over when I've made something that is broken or flawed or flopped in some way, especially when that thing seems irreparably broken or completely flopped or inedible. How many of us haven't thrown something in the trash and started over? Because a thing we made just was not going to work. So on the simple level, I get that. More complexly, I can relate to the struggle between a desire for justice and a desire for mercy. 
I always want mercy and grace for all. I'm a grace girl. (laughs) It's hard for me to fathom, for example, an eternity where everyone is not ultimately swept up in God's grace. It's hard for me to fathom anything different than that, than all of us ultimately being welcomed and embraced and filled with and covered by God's grace. So, I always want mercy and grace for all. When there has been a true acknowledgement of the former injustice and harm, and when there has been a turn toward repairing that harm and the restoration of right relationship, in that circumstance, I'm all about mercy. But when the injustice seems irreparable and the oppressor unrepentant, when there's been an abuse of unbridled power, when that Injustice seems irreparable and the oppressor unrepentant when it's something like what Genesis describes God seeing in humankind before the flood. You maybe heard Amy say these words. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. I got someone in mind I think might have that going on. So when people, politicians, and governments cause incredible damage, then I want some justice by any means necessary. Okay, maybe not any means necessary, but you get the point. Uh, People who seem to perpetrate an unending stream of harm and violence, they ignite my hunger for justice to be wrought. And so that struggle, that struggle between a desire for mercy and grace for all, And a desire for justice, that struggle is alive in God. I see that in the story. Who, more than I could ever know or experience, also wants both justice and mercy for all, and who must be devastated when it seems the two cannot be achieved together. Another thing that this flood story reveals about God is God's promise never again. Never again. It has been a rallying cry for many peoples across time and space who have survived some awful tragedy or trauma or crisis or act of violence who claim this mantra as a source of strength. Never again. And here in this story, that powerful claim is first uttered and embraced by God. Never again. God sets the bow in the sky, and that bow in the sky is for God. It's not for us. If you read the story, that bow is to remind God of God's promise, never again. And finally, as I mentioned already, this story concludes not with God and humanity parting ways. Thank you very much. Nice run together. Going to take off. Relationship irrevocably shattered. But with God turning toward. With God initiating a covenant And not just with humanity, but with all of creation, which, I guess this is my third thing, but that actually makes it sort of a fourth thing. God's primary concern is not with saving individual souls. God's primary concern in this story is enlisting humans as agents in the renewal of all creation, the renewal of all creation. And this is a very good word in our climate-changing and hyper-consumeristic world. That God's primary concern is enlisting us as humans, as agents, 
and the renewal of all creation. May it be so. So while not a comprehensive theology of the totality of who I believe God to be after wrestling with this horrific story, I make these claims. The struggle between a desire for mercy and a desire for justice is alive in God. I know that struggle. God is the first to claim never again. Modeling a way to survive something awful, to reclaim dignity, and to make a choice about doing things differently in the future. Never again. Following this breach in relationship, God turns toward humanity. And I can't put my fourth finger up. I'm going to move to this. And God not only turns toward humanity, but all creation, covenanting with the earth itself. That's as good as I can get. And if we didn't already know it, we know within just a few chapters of Genesis that the story it tells, its narration of God's story from the very beginning, because this is our first story as we begin our arc through the biblical narrative, from the very beginning we know that it's going to be just as complex and challenging as our lived lives. This is not a sanitized fairy tale sort of story, the Bible. But it's something that might actually make sense in our tragic and broken world. Like Jacob, we will indeed need to wrestle painfully in the dark before we can discern the divine in these stories and in our lives. There is no one alongside whom I would rather do that wrestling than y'all. So may God be with us as we continue to wrestle in the dark with these stories and how they impact our lives and our thoughts of God. Amen.